Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Let me pray for us before we begin. Father, we thank you for a time of song, Lord, and just focusing our hearts on you, Lord, I thank you for an opportunity now to open the truth of your word as we continue to worship together, Father, through study. I pray, Lord, you'd speak to us very clearly, Lord. I pray you would take a challenging topic and help us apply it to our lives, Father. Give us the strength and the courage to become the men and women of God you've called us to be. And then through the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray be transformed more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I want to begin this morning by reading from 1 Samuel chapter 16. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen. Some of you will be familiar with the story that people of Israel have clamored for a king. They've begged for a king. They've looked at the nations that surrounded them and they've asked for a king. And the Lord has said, you don't need a king, but if you want one that badly, I'll give you one. So they give them King Saul. King Saul is sinful. He's selfish. He's an utter failure. And so the Lord has decided to anoint a new king, and he calls Samuel to anoint that new king. The only problem is, at this moment, Samuel isn't yet sure who the king's going to be. And so we pick up the story in 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Now skip down to verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. You see, Samuel had kind of already in his mind made this decision. And he based the decision on what he saw outwardly on the size and the height and the appearance of this man, of his strength. But the Lord in verse 7 says to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance. Or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Amen Amen for that, right? Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now the Lord would go on to anoint David. The youngest and the smallest of Jesse's sons. And he would become the greatest king that Israel had ever known. See, here's a biblical truth that's going to really form the foundation for what we're going to say over these next several weeks. God looks beyond our actions. He looks into the very depths of our hearts. So we're going to figure out this morning just how deep he looks. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Five. This is week five in the sermon series that we have entitled Upside Down. So study through Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and we've called it Upside Down because everything that Christ is going to teach us, everything that Christ is going to show us, every way in which we're challenged is different from what the world says. It's opposite of the world's standards. It's, in fact, upside down. 
And so we've spent some time already reading through the Sermon on the Mount. A few weeks ago we studied over a couple weeks through the Beatitudes. Last week we talked about being salt and light and the importance of being missional, going into the world and, and recognizing need, pouring into the lives of others, loving people in the name of Jesus Christ. And today in our study, we're going to cover a couple of difficult topics. Murder and adultery. Now this week and next week have been two weeks that I've circled on my calendar for several weeks because talking about adultery and next week talking about divorce can be very, very difficult. But I want to tell you something that's true. And I'm going to tell you my stand on this. We can't shy away from biblical truth just because it's difficult. What we have to do instead is read it and study it and consider it and through the grace of God in our hearts, change our lives so we live according to his standards. So this morning, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, we're going to walk through this process. Jesus has already walked up on the mountaintop. He's beginning to teach his disciples. He's already talked through the Beatitudes. He's talked through salt and light. And we find now in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago... Do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, here's the first truth I want you to understand this morning. The first truth we're going to contemplate and delve into a little more deeply. Number one, anger, according to Christ's standards, is murder of the mind. Anger is murder of the mind. Now Jesus sets off the remaining part of Matthew chapter 5 with six phrases. You have heard it said, and you may see in your Bible that they're categorized. Murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, an eye for an eye, or revenge, and then love for enemies. Each one of these sections begins with this little phrase, you have heard it said. It's interesting that he does that because it helps us understand the context of the first century. See, for the person living in the first century, number one, most of them couldn't read. And if they could read, they didn't have access to the Word of God. And so the only way they could hear the truth of the Word of God is someone would speak it to them. And so they would go to the synagogue, they would go to the temple, the scroll would be enrolled, and they would read through the scroll and speak to the people about how they should live their lives. So when Christ says, you have heard it said, he's referring to the Old Testament and the teachings of the Old Testament. But let's remember... Jesus reminded us last week, and I think he did it in preface to what he's going to talk about this week. He hasn't come to abolish the law. He hasn't come to do away with the law. He hasn't come to change the law. He's come instead to fulfill the law. I'm going to teach you, he says, not the letter of the law, but the intent of the law. How should you be living your lives according to the standard of the Word of God? Now, our text this morning covers murder and adultery and I bet if we went around the room or we went around to other churches or we went out into the world at large and we said to people name the worst sins you can think of now I'm not making a theological distinction here I'm saying just what would people say I bet you that murder and adultery would be right near the top of the list but it's interesting as we study both of these sins today in in the context of Matthew chapter 5 what we're going to see is this For Christ, those actions are important, but he's way more concerned with the hearts of the people than what they do. Because Jesus understands if our hearts are righteous, 
then our actions will follow. Now, those of you that are versed in the Old Testament, you may remember Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, of course, the story of creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis chapter 3 is the fall when sin entered the world. Adam and Eve sinned, and the Lord cursed them, and we understand Genesis chapter 3. But it's interesting, in Genesis chapter 4, after sin entered the world, the very first sin that was committed is, do you remember? Murder. Isn't that interesting? Cain and Abel, the brothers, the sons of Adam and Eve, they had offered the Lord an offering, and the Bible says that the Lord looked with favor on Abel's offering. And he rejected Cain's offering. So Cain got angry. We read in Genesis chapter 4, verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now, verse 8. Now, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Now we understand all through scripture that murder is forbidden. In fact, it's one of the Ten Commandments. We can all recite it. Exodus 20 verse 13 says very clearly, you shall not murder. Murder is prohibited. It's a sin all through scripture. But here's the interesting thing about Matthew 5. Murder in this context is not the focus of Christ's teaching. He speaks of murder, but his intent is to delve deeper to go beyond the actions and to recognize it's not just about the act of murder that's important, it's about the intent in your heart that really matters. And he gives us kind of this stunning picture of our thoughts and he says to us, if you are angry at your brother, you are guilty of murder. Now here's what a lot of people do. They take this text and they say, well, you know what, I've never committed murder. <laughs> I've never killed anybody, and so because I've never killed anybody, this particular text, at least in Matthew chapter 5, doesn't apply to me, right? It's not important to me because I haven't done these things, I've never made these mistakes. And what we begin to realize instead, it is that Christ delves beyond the action into the hearts, we become, if we do that, almost like the Pharisees. When we begin to look at other people and we say, well, they've done those bad things, I've never done those things, I've never made those types of mistakes. So, for example, Luke chapter 18 Verses 11 and 12, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. I want you to listen to the hypocrisy of this prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. See, we're very good at looking at the sins of others, aren't we? We're very good at recognizing the big sins of the world. I've never murdered anybody, Lord, so I'm good. The problem with that line of thinking is that it's not really about the action. It's about the heart, right? And here's what you begin to understand as you grow in your walk with Christ. The closer you get to Christ, the more you recognize about yourself the need to change. And the more that you begin to recognize the smaller things that separate you from God. It's beyond the big things. It's the small things that are important. It's the attitude and it's the thought that's so important in our minds. See, Jesus kind of leads us to this conclusion in these few verses. Actions are certainly important, but it's about living a life of holiness that's important to him, right? Murder is wrong, but the Bible tells us that if you hate your brother or sister, then you are guilty of murder. 
John MacArthur summed it up for us when he said this. When the best of people, even the best of people in their hearts are sinful. And so are in the same boat with the worst of people. Not to consider the state of our hearts is not to consider that which the Lord holds to be the all-important measure of true guilt. I think that's very important to realize. We may think we're innocent and not guilty because we've never murdered. Christ says if you're angry in your heart, then you're guilty. Now that's upside down from what the world says, isn't it? The world says you don't need to murder, but what's in your heart is really not that big of a deal. What you think is really not that big of a deal. In fact, there are some moments when you should be mad at somebody for treating you poorly. There are moments when you should stand up and say something to somebody because they've been mean to you. There are moments when maybe you need to get back at somebody because of some way they've mistreated you. That's not what Christ says. And if we're going to live by the teaching of the Word of God, we need to understand that the way the world tells us to live and the way Christ tells us to live are often vastly different. Now let's meddle a little bit more into your life. Is that okay? That's one of the fun things I get to do. I don't get to talk to you directly, but I get to talk to you all at the same time. Now, bear in mind, as I'm speaking to you, I'm speaking to myself. But as we think about anger in our hearts, men, that includes the way we treat our spouse, doesn't it? Let's just start there. We had an interesting conversation in my Wednesday night Deep Roots class. I'm teaching a class on biblical manhood, and we started just kind of with an introduction of what a biblical man ought to be. I had fun with it. I showed pictures of Clint Eastwood and Rambo and those guys. Is that what a man ought to be? Right? Is that what the Bible says a man ought to be? <laughs> I had Chuck Norris with two Uzis, you know, that was a pretty cool picture. In fact, what the Lord calls us to be and what the world calls us to be sometimes are vastly different, right? We got into this very interesting discussion. Me and you have, a, you have a real hard day at work. It's a long day. Something bad happens. It doesn't go according to plan. And you're struggling with something. Somebody's angered you, your boss or an employee or whatever the case may be. You get in your car to drive home. You've got a couple of choices when you arrive at your house. Choice number one is you can be angry at your spouse and your kids and you can kind of take the frustration of the day out on them. You can sulk, you can be alone, whatever that looks like. Or action number two, you can come home with this attitude of, you know, that was a really rough day at work, but the Lord's called me to be different, hasn't he? The Lord's called me to serve. See, I believe that the husband sets the tone of the house, dads. And when you walk in after a long day's work, it's awfully important the way you respond And if you're angry with your spouse, if you're angry with your kids, the Bible tells us, in essence, you've committed murder, you've sinned. Now, what does that look like at work with your coworker and your thoughts? What does that look like with your boss? Students, what does that look like at school? I got a feeling, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I got a feeling if I asked you, did anybody do anything to you last week that you didn't like? It happens every single day, doesn't it? It happens in our world every day, doesn't it? It's very easy for us to become angry with that person, but Christ commands us to be very careful. Very careful in the way we respond. Because the anger in our hearts leads to other things. Now look at verse 23. Christ says, this is such a big deal to me. This is so important to me. This is such an important thing for you to understand that it demands an immediate response. I want you to notice the immediacy of what Christ says here in verse 23. Therefore, in other words, he's just said, if you think badly, if you're angry in your heart, you've committed murder. Now verse 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar. Now let's just pause for a second. That's the context of the body of believers assembled together, right? Whether that's through worship or prayer or Bible study. In other words, if we were to rephrase that and say something like this. Therefore, if you're at church even... 
and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Verse 25, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Christ says, if you're angry with your brother and your heart, you need to get rid of that anger fast. Now why would that be the case? Because Christ understands what anger turns into. And Christ understands how anger can simmer and how it can turn to bitterness And how it can turn to rage. And how it can eventually turn to murder. You ever met the person who's angry and just can't seem to get over it? Or who's bitter and just can't seem to get over it? And you just watch that person and you just see that person week after week, month after month. And how that just kind of eats them up from the inside out. You ever seen that person? That's what anger does. That's what bitterness does. And so Christ says, this is a big deal. You need to get rid of it fast. And so I'm going to give you, as we move forward, six very practical things on anger. I have conversations with people on a regular basis, and I hear people say to me sometimes, I really struggle with anger. So I'm going to give you six very quick things to help you work through anger. I have them on the screen one at a time. Number one, you need to pray that God would grant you peace and calmness. It begins with prayer. I promise you it begins with prayer. It doesn't begin the moment you walk into work to confront your boss. It doesn't begin the moment you come home after a long day and see your spouse. It doesn't begin when you get in that confrontation with that person you don't like. It doesn't begin there. It begins instead in the privacy of your own heart, in the privacy of your own mind, in prayer, and seeking out the Lord to grant you peace and to grant you calmness. If you haven't bathed it in prayer, you can expect to fail, I promise you that. Because in our own flesh, we're not strong enough. Here's the second thing. We need to be aware of the things that cause anger and prepare for them. Now, if we were honest, we all have little buttons, don't we? And your spouse may or may not be aware of those buttons, but I can promise you your spouse will one day push them. And when your spouse pushes that little button, sometimes we flare up, right? Be aware of those things. Pray through those things. Lord, I really hate it when she leaves the top off the toothpaste. Help me not to get angry the next time it happens. Right? We laugh at those things, but it's the little things that lead to anger. It's the little things that lead to bitterness. Be aware of those things. Number three, relax and take some time. (laughs) Just take a deep breath. You know, sometimes there's a period of about 30 seconds there where that anger stews and simmers, and you've got a couple of choices. Either react to the anger or relax. I'm going to encourage you just to take some time. Maybe it's time for another prayer. Lord, help me. Help me in this moment. Number four, talk to the person that angers you. If you're struggling with a relationship with somebody else that's angered you or been bitter towards you or sinned against you, you ought to spend some time reading Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is the clearest picture of reconciliation in the Bible. And here's the bottom line of Matthew 18. If somebody has done something wrong to you, you go to that person. Now, here's what Matthew 18 doesn't say. You go to your best friend and tell your best friend all about it first. It really doesn't say you go to Facebook and post a status update on what somebody did to you, right? Not naming any names, but wow, was that person a jerk, right? Three exclamation points. It's amazing to me how people take this social media idea as if it's their platform 
to say the things that probably they would never say to that person's face. Number five, don't let the anger control you. Just let it go, right? Because it will control you. It will lead to bitterness. As Christ says, it will lead eventually to murder. And then number five, forgive. That's the hardest one to do, right? Now, I could have done a sermon on each one of these. All these are biblical principles, but I just don't have time this morning to go into depth. But I think if you study over and over in Scripture, the answer to our bitterness, the answer to our rage, the answer to our anger is forgiveness. And there's a very interesting parallel. You see, Christ forgave us. And so we're called now to forgive others. Now let's move on. Verse 27. That was the easy section. (laughs) Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There it is again. It's about the heart. It's about the thought process. It's about the mind. So here's the second truth we need to understand this morning. Number two, lust is adultery of the heart. Lust is adultery of the heart. Now I want to define adultery just very quickly. I want to make sure we're all on the same page. Adultery is sexual relations between a married person And someone else other than his or her spouse. That's what adultery says. That's what adultery means. Now, unfortunately, we see that adultery is found all through the Bible, right? It's interesting. If you study some of these characters in Scripture, some of these people that did the most work for God, I started by reading about David for a couple of reasons. Number one, it was about David's, it was about the heart of this man that God looked at. But the second very interesting thing about David was the greatest king that Israel had ever seen. David committed murder and adultery in his life, right? The two very things that Christ speaks of here in Matthew chapter 5. So we see that adultery is a part of Scripture. We see that it's forbidden in Scripture. For example, Exodus 20, 14 says this, You shall not commit adultery. Proverbs 6, 32 puts it in pretty clear words for us. A man who commits adultery has no sense. (laughs) Whoever does so destroys himself. And by the way, it goes both ways. We use he and she here. I think a woman can look lustfully just like a man can look lustfully. But Jesus takes it kind of a step farther here in this text. He says it's, it's not so much about adultery, although that's important. What's really important is your heart and your mind, right? Simply looking at someone with lust is adultery. Now that is a very challenging thing for us to hear, and I would argue that of all the things we've covered up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, this may be the most difficult teaching we have yet encountered. For two reasons. Reason number one, men, if we're honest with ourselves, this is every man's struggle, isn't it? Period. Some worse than others, some better than others, but it's a struggle that we all face on one level or the other. But I think it's even doubly difficult because the world we live in glorifies sex outside of the marriage. It's becoming more and more common, it's becoming more and more accepted. John MacArthur again summarized it nicely when he said this. Ours is a day of unbridled indulgence and sexual passion. People propagate, promote, and exploit it through the most powerful and pervasive media ever known to man. It seems to be the almost uninterrupted theme of our society's entertainment. 
Mass media uses sex to sell its products and to glamorize its programs. Sex crimes are at an all-time high, while infidelity, divorce, and perversion are justified. Marriage, sexual fidelity, and moral purity are scorned, ridiculed, and laughed at. We are preoccupied with sex to a degree perhaps never before seen in a civilized culture. I think he's exactly right. And so I started thinking about all the ways we're exposed to this. All the way in which this surrounds us in the world that we live in. I thought about the struggle with pornography that so many people have. That may be the single biggest issue that our society faces today. And yet it's unknown to so many. It's hidden. You know, 25, 30 years ago, if you were going to indulge in this, you had to walk into a store and look somebody in the eye and give them money for something. They gave you something in return, right? Today, all you got to do is turn the light off and lock the door, turn on your computer. Nobody ever knows. It's a struggle that people face. I think it's one of the biggest struggles that our society may be facing. Television shows are filled with sexual innuendos. In fact, television shows designed for younger and younger audiences have an agenda. You ought to go and read about some of the shows that are on today. You may already be watching them. And how filled they are with this thought and with this mindset. It's in magazines everywhere you look. You have a hard time going to the bookstore and going to the magazine rack without seeing 20 or 30 magazine covers that are going to make it very difficult for you to live a holy life, right? You're in the checkout line at the supermarket and you're looking at these magazines and you see the articles and what they're about and how they cause lustful thoughts and how it's very difficult for you to live a godly life surrounded by these things. We're surrounded by movies. We're surrounded by online stuff, videos, the books that we read. We're bombarded over and over and over again with the opportunity to look lustfully at someone else. Now here's the bigger problem. As much as our society accepts that, as much as our society glamorizes that, the foundational issue is this. We don't think sin is a big deal anymore, do we? It doesn't affect us. It's not anything we need to worry about. It's not that big of a deal. It's not something we need to consider. Well, let me remind you of a biblical truth. Jesus Christ died on the cross because of sin. Understand that? Had sin never entered the world, Christ would not have to come and die on the cross for those sins. But because we are sinful, Jesus came to the earth, he lived a sinless life, he willingly walked to Calvary, and he died on the cross all because of our sin. Now I want to spend just a couple of minutes kind of bringing this a little closer to home. And again, I said this was a difficult section because it's things that we're all challenged with. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to stand up here and preach the word of God, I need to say some truth to people that may not want to necessarily hear it, including myself. So I started listing some of the ways in which we struggle and some of the things we need to be made aware of based on this teaching. I want to start with our students. Students, you need to hear me say as your pastor that sex outside of marriage is a sin. It may be something everybody's doing. It may be something you want to do. It may be something you've done in the past. It may be cool at school. It may be what everybody's talking about. But I'm going to promise you one thing. It's going to lead you to a place that you're not going to be comfortable with one day. And you may not understand it now. It may be 10, 20, 30 years from now. But one day you'll look back and I can promise you one thing. You wish you hadn't done it. 
So if you've never done it, I'm going to tell you abstain from doing it. If you have done it, I'm going to promise you there's hope in Christ. And there's forgiveness in Christ. Because so many other people that you know and love have failed in that same area. And Christ has sustained them. Christ has forgiven them. Christ has given them hope. But you need to be aware of the truth of the word of God. Husbands, men, that casual look online at those pictures is a sin. It may not happen very often. It may not be something you're proud of. It may, be something, may not be something you do on a regular basis. But it's damaging your walk with Christ. It's damaging your ability to lead your wife. It's damaging your ability to lead your family the way the Lord has called you to live. And it's like a black hole, I promise you. You get sucked into it deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Wives, that book that you read or that movie that you watch that leads you to lust is a sin. Now, I'm not going to mention any specific names, but I know there are books out there that people read. There's a book in the last year or so that's been very popular. A lot of people have read it. A lot of people have commented on it. Ladies, I just want you to think through this just for a second. Think about that book that you've read and answer this question. Would you be upset if you caught your husband watching a video of people doing what that book describes? Would you be happy about that? I got a feeling you wouldn't, right? So why is it okay for us to read it? See, the truth of the matter is this. Christ understands that most of us will never quite get to that point of physically committing adultery, but he knows that every person is going to be challenged with lust in their hearts, and he recognizes that. And he wants us to be aware of it. And he wants us to understand that when we do those things, it keeps us from being holy. It keeps us from serving the Lord and allowing him to use us in the way that he wants so desperately to use us. Now, this is such a big deal for Jesus. I want you to look at what he says here. I want you to look at his response to this. Verse 29, I think we have it on the screen. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. That's pretty extreme, isn't it? It's better for you to lose part of your body than from your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than from your whole body to go into hell. (laughs) You see, Christ is so desperately concerned with our holiness that he challenges us to remove anything that will cause us to stumble. That may mean you need to remove internet. That may mean you need to remove television. That may mean you need to remove that relationship with the opposite sex that's trending in a direction you know full well it shouldn't trend. Maybe that means you need to remove certain movies from the things that you see. So here's the truth of the matter. God calls us to greater holiness. I mean, that's upside down from what the world says, right? The world says it's okay, it's acceptable, It's fun, it's pleasurable, everybody else is doing it. Why don't you just go along to get along with everybody else? That's not what the Word of God teaches. And I think it's time for some of us to be confronted with this truth and recognize that we need to make some changes in our own hearts. So I'm going to give you again, as I did with murder and with anger in our hearts, five very practical ways to avoid temptation. 
Five very practical ways to avoid temptation. Number one, our greatest weapon is prayer and study. I said that with the other one as well. Our greatest weapon is prayer and study. I'm becoming more and more convinced that great amounts of prayer, great amounts of Bible reading acts as an antidote against the sinfulness of the world. I'm just telling you that's what I think. I'm not saying you even have to understand everything you're reading. I think you need to spend time reading the Word of God, and the more you read it, the more you're going to be insulated. And the more you're going to be isolated. That doesn't mean believers are not going to sin, but I'm telling you it will help you as a weapon against temptation. Number two, we must as much as possible remove ourselves from temptation. I had a conversation with a guy a few years back. I was counseling with him on a pornography issue he was dealing with. And he just couldn't get past the idea that the internet in his home was a big deal. And he said, well, I'm using it for school, right? I'm using it for this. I said, you know, it doesn't matter what you're using it for. It's leading you down a very dark place. You need to get rid of it. And I'm not going to talk to you again until you've removed it from your home because we're both wasting each other's time. He never came back. It's a struggle, isn't it? It grabs a hold of us and it hangs on tightly. And we need to do everything we can to remove ourselves from that temptation. Number three, we need to be reminded that we are responsible for our actions. Lustfulness may seem personal, it may seem private, it may seem like it's only happening in your own mind, but the Lord is clear, you are responsible. Nobody else may know about it, nobody else may see it, but the Lord says, I see it, because I see your heart. Number four, we need to practice purity and self-control. As best as we can, we need to practice purity and self-control. We need to offer, as Romans 12 says, our bodies as living sacrifices. That's the call of the Lord in our hearts. And number five, we need to live in community with the body of Christ. You need to surround yourself with other believers. With other people that love the Lord, with other people that are willing to sacrifice for the Lord, with other people that are interested in living a holy life. And if it's a big struggle for you, you need to find an accountability partner. You need to find somebody that will look you in the eye and say, you know, what you're doing is wrong, but I want to help you. I want to help you move past this. One of the greatest gifts that we have been given, I think, as followers of Jesus Christ, is a community of people that surrounds us. A community of people that, by the way, struggle with the same sorts of things that we struggle with. It's interesting helping you move forward. Now, I need to finish up this morning. Here's a third truth. We've seen that anger is murder of the mind. We've seen that lust is adultery of the heart. And here's the third truth. And it's something that kind of forms an umbrella over everything we've talked about up to this point. Number three, there is forgiveness in Christ. See, here's the bottom line. And I stand before you as a sinner as well as your pastor. We've all committed murder, right? If not physically, then at least in our minds. We've all committed adultery. If not physically, then at least in our hearts. But for all that have struggled, for all that are now struggling, for all that are mired in something they can't seem to break free from, I want to promise you this, there is forgiveness and hope in Christ. One of the most profound stories in Scripture related to this topic is when the Pharisees brought to Jesus a woman who was trapped in adultery. And they bring her to Jesus and they're ready to cast the stones and they're beginning to question Jesus on what they should do. And John chapter 8 and the Bible says that Jesus basically just kind of kneels down in the dirt. And I just imagine him, he's taking his finger. The Bible says he's just writing. 
Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what he's saying. I'm wondering if he's writing names that these men would recognize. Maybe names of ladies they've known in the past. And he begins to write these names, and one by one, the Bible says that these men begin to walk away until there's no one left. And in John chapter 8, verse 10, Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. I thank God that I have a gospel which tells me that the author who is spotless and pure and utterly holy has taken my sin and my guilt upon himself and I am washed in his precious blood. And he has given me his own nature. When I realized that, I needed a new heart. I found, thank God, that he had come to give it to me. See, wherever you are right now, there is hope in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we've been challenged by your word again. Maybe today on a deeper level, Father, maybe in areas that we haven't even considered. And Lord, I'm mindful now that all of us have failed in one area or the other. I'm mindful, Father, that we are all sinners in need of a Savior. Father, I'm mindful of the the dangers of anger and the, the dangers and the difficulties of lust, Father. But I'm also reminded that we see over and over in Scripture that through you there's hope. And through you there's peace. And through you there is forgiveness. And so we pray, Father, blessings upon the people of this church, Father. I pray they would accept that forgiveness. They would recognize that calling. They would see the need of living a holy life in service for you. You give us the strength and the ability and the courage to do all things you've called us to do. It's in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen. You can stand. We're going to give you the opportunity. We open up the altar and we begin to kind of combine our prayer time and our altar time together, our invitation. So I want to encourage you. This is some pretty weighty discussion, right? Anger and lust and how we treat others and how we think. And and maybe there's somebody in your life that you know has been struggling or maybe there's something you need to pray about. The altar is always open. And let me just say this. If you want to walk down front and pray, that's okay. You need to pray where you are. You need to reconcile your heart with the truth of the Word of God. And we're going to give you an opportunity to do that now. You can repent of your sins and accept Christ, or you can join this church. This is your time now as we sing together. You come. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.